Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Fruit Loops Season 3, Episode 24. And thank you so goddamn much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Mm-hmm. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Mm-hmm. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Yes, and if you would like to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch on our website, but if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast from and be sure to share our show with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Beth? 
Well, this is part two of our episode on Cleophis Prince Jr., also known as the Claremont Killer, a black male serial killer from San Diego who raped and killed six white ladies. So if you're just tuning in and you haven't listened to part one, go back, listen to part one, and we'll wait for you right here. Yes, babies, we will, we will, we will be here. We will not fail you. <laughs> so um, how you doing? I'm stressed out. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, I just have a lot on my plate this week, but hopefully it'll get better soon. And I'm looking forward to going to visit my sister in February. It's crazy. I'm going to visit my sister in Canada in February. (laughs) Oh, my God. On purpose? (laughs) Yeah, on purpose. Well, originally they were going to come visit me, but um, my brother-in-law got sick. So I'm going to go visit them. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice. That'll be nice. I mean, yeah, you'll be indoors, so it's not like yeah, get, yeah, like frostbite. Right? And they have a big mall there and lots of stuff to do indoors. So it's kind of like Arizona in the summer. Ah, yes, this I'm <laughs> yeah, familiar. Nobody with. goes out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm out here in these streets trying to be my best sexy self and get my shit together. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> keep me on the prayer list. Um, All right. So now we are going to get into some listener letters. Ooh, hello, angels. Hello. Uh, so it uh, looks like you've got a doozy, Beth. I, I listened to both voicemails also. Um, yeah, I- yeah. We got a beautiful voicemail from a listener, but unfortunately, the quality of the audio wasn't very good. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't. I wasn't quite sure of her name. You, I thought it you sounded like Jade. 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 Yeah. yeah. It, it might be Jade. So sorry if we got it wrong. Um, it was hard to hear. Plus, I'm going deaf from all the rock concerts I went to as a kid. So <laughs> I have a hard time hearing things. <laughs> but anyway, uh, she's been listening to us for the last three weeks and she's already binged all three seasons. Oh, my God excited for our new episodes and she finds us entertaining and really appreciates how we talk about mental health. Yes. Uh, I just have to say thank you so much for the voice, the voicemails and uh, we loved yeah. hearing from you. Um, yeah, they're and, beautiful. Yeah. And anybody else who's reached out to us on all the things, all platforms. So hip hop air horns for all. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Yes. Yep. Thank you guys. Um, so now we're going to take a quick bake and we're Quick bake. <laughs> Maybe you are. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. Coming up in season one of Scene of the Crime, Delphi. Why Libby? Why Abby? Why Delphi? Those girls loved each other. They were good friends. Neither one of them left each other's side. Both those girls are heroes. Before the words came out, I knew. I knew this was not good. Purse and phone was thrown over the fence. As soon as I saw that, I knew something really bad happened. The detectives were like, this is not going to take that long. It's a small town. Somebody's going to say something, and this is all going to be over soon. The first couple of weeks, that's what it felt like, is that any day now. And then all of a sudden, a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months. My biggest fear is that whoever did this would do it again. I don't want that to happen to another family, because I'm telling you, it's hell. There was no logical reason anybody would have known those girls or be there that day. Child abduction murders in and of themselves are incredibly rare, but the abduction of two children at one time is even rarer. I've only seen a couple in my entire career. There is a lot of crime scene evidence. 
some of it is somewhat odd. Shortly after solving the Golden State Killer case, I did speak with an investigator that was involved with the Delphi murders. If you haven't walked across the bridge, you don't understand, right? Yeah, like that bridge but is scary. It is scary, and those railroad ties are rotted. That bridge scares me, so yeah. for somebody to be able to cross it, he's moving well enough that he has to know the bridge. He's done that before. It could have been any one of our kids. It could have been anyone at the bridge that day. It's hard for me to believe anybody could do something so bizarre and horrible and not feel compelled to tell somebody about it. Those two young girls were everybody's daughter. I refuse to accept evil as a standard bearer in American society. I believe we're one piece of the puzzle away from figuring out who this individual is. To the killer who may be in this room. Do you want to know what we know? And one day, you will. You've just listened to a short preview of Scene of the Crime Season 1, Delphi. Be sure to subscribe right now wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Uh, So uh, who are we talking about again, Beth? This is part two of our episode on Cleophas Prince Jr., an American serial killer who was convicted and sentenced to death in 1993 for the murders of six women in San Diego County, California. So now we're going to dive back into the timeline. We started it on the last episode, but now we're continuing. Yeah. So take it away, Beth. So, well, to summarize, uh, Cleophas Prince was in the Navy, but was court-martialed for larceny and then discharged shortly afterwards. He then began burglarizing residences, and he killed three young white women in San Diego in the early 90s. His MO was to follow them to their apartments and either break in, push, or talk his way in, and then kill them by stabbing them to death. Uh, he did not always have a sexual motivation in that he did not always rape the women um, right. but yeah he did he did kill them he did kill them yes uh so he was sometimes brazen i'll say he killed one woman while her friend was still at the pool nearby and was seen leaving the crime scene by multiple people he also talked about the crimes to his friends like bragging about it although it seems the friends thought he was just bullshitting so we left off after another attempted murder but that woman was able to fight him off and get away yeah you go girl Mm -hmm. So the FBI was called in and the Claremont killer was profiled. The police began looking for a man who was a loner, who had trouble holding down a job and who was extremely agitated after Holly Tarr's murder. Prince was actually eliminated as a subject, even though, if you recall, he signed into the rec room after the TARS. He had a girlfriend and a job, and when he was questioned, he was not nervous at all. He apparently was able to talk his way out of becoming a suspect. In early May 1990, Prince moved to the East San Diego apartment complex called the Top of the Hill. Late in the evening of May 20th, 1990, Alyssa Naomi Keller, a 38-year-old white woman who also lived in that complex, spoke on the telephone to her 17-year-old daughter, Michelle, who was away for the weekend. On May 21st, 1990, Alyssa never showed up for work, which was unusual, and calls placed to her home went unanswered. Her daughter, Michelle, arrived at their home at approximately 11.30 p.m. on that same day. Immediately, Michelle felt that there was something wrong. The deadbolt on the front door was not locked and the chain was off the hook, which was Mm -hmm. unusual. Mm -hmm. All of the lights were off and her mother usually left at least a light on in the kitchen. And I do that, too. 
Yeah, I I like to do that too. But my husband's he's like the the light police. The light police. Uh, he he he's always trying to keep our electric bill really like down. And uh, so I go to bed thinking, oh, in case I get up in the morning, I won't I won't like trip or step on a scorpion right, or, or right. trip over a dog. Um, but I do anyway because he comes in after <laughs> he me. He turns the lights turn, off. Turns the lights off. <laughs> um, when uh, Michelle went to her bedroom, she discovered her mother's body lying on the floor with a blanket covering her torso. She screamed and ran to the living room to call 911. Alyssa lay on the carpet with her arms and legs splayed out. She wore only a tank top and there were nine tightly clustered, very deep stab wounds in her chest, along with some defensive wounds. There was blood smeared on her arms and legs and significant bruising to her face. It appeared that she had probably been punched in the face and then choked. When she was found, Alyssa had been dead between 6 and 12 hours, possibly longer. By the way, there's a documentary about this case. Uh-huh. And uh, they, they showed crime scene photos of oh. this one. Lots of blood smeared. Yikes. Initially, Elisa's murder was not connected to the Claremont killings because she was not killed in the Claremont area, but about 15 miles away. And police were unaware that the killer had moved. She was also older than the other victims. And it has been speculated that Prince may have actually been targeting Elisa's daughter, Michelle, but she wasn't home. The perpetrator's point of entry was a partially opened window. Shoe prints on the sill and on a nearby stereo were made by Nike or Nike Orden chairs. <laughs> what? <laughs> Never heard of that kind. Oh, no, that's a new one. <laughs> Made by Nike Air Jordan athletic shoes and were similar to those found at the scene of Holly Tar's murder. Also, bloody marks in a honeycomb or crosshatch pattern were found on the bathroom counter. Uh, right. Uh, that was one of his signatures. Um, yeah. Alyssa had a gold nugget ring that she always wore and it was missing. Prince was seen wearing a gold nugget ring after the murder. Oh, my God. The ring was later stolen from Prince, but was traced to him during the murder investigation. Michael Barry, a neighbor and acquaintance of Prince's when they both lived at the top of the hill apartments, noticed that Prince possessed a large quantity of jewelry. Prince told Barry that he got it off the girls he had slept with and that, quote, they would not be needing them anymore. Ooh, chills up my spine. I know. <laughs> Prince also taught Barry how to break into an apartment by using a Blockbuster video store card, remarking that as long as it doesn't have a deadbolt, I can get into the apartment. <sighs> Yikes. Um, yeah. Sometime after Elisa's murder, Prince and a group of other men were talking about the crime when Prince bragged, I took her out. But the remark was made while they were getting ready for a party and everyone just thought it was a joke. Ooh. I don't know what you and your friends joke about. Yeah, but... I know. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem like a very funny joke. <laughs> it doesn't. But, you know, I, I, I was listening to a, a, comedian, a female comedian talk about how dudes sort of talk about their dicks. And it's like a conquest. So maybe right. when they heard him say, I took her out. Um, maybe they were like, oh, that means maybe he just slept with her or something. I don't know. It's a stretch. Yeah, but. that's a big stretch. <laughs> <laughs> On August 2nd, 1990, Anna McComer, who resided at the Top of the Hill apartment complex, and two friends who were visiting her from Italy, returned to Anna's apartment and discovered that a large amount of cash in 50 and $100 bills had been stolen, along with some Italian lire belonging to the Italian visitors. What's Italian Leary? It's their dollars. Oh, 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So on August 3rd, 1990, Prince exchanged 94,000 Italian lire for $73 at the San Diego Thomas Cook Foreign Exchange Office. He also deposited $1,100 into his bank account. The cash deposit was far greater than any he previously had made in the five months that he had that account. On September 13th, 1990, at about 8 a.m., Pamela Clark left her home in the University City area of San Diego and went to the Family Fitness Center on Miramar Road. She was white, 42 years old, and very fit. She was only a year away from earning a master's degree in counseling psychology at the University of Humanistic Studies in Del Mar. Oh, man. Um, Her husband of three years left their home at approximately 8.30 a.m. Pamela's 18-year-old daughter, Amber, was still in the home sleeping. Amber Clark had just started her first year at Mesa College. She was planning to become a counselor like her mother. At about 10 a.m., neighbors heard Amber speaking or arguing with somebody inside the house. One neighbor heard Amber call out as if afraid and also heard a male voice, but the neighbor believed that nothing serious was happening. Mm. Pamela, who worked as a massage therapist at the same office as her husband, who was an acupuncturist, did not appear for work uh, for her 11 a.m. appointment. No one answered the telephone at the Clark's home either. Pamela's husband asked a family friend to go check on her. There, they discovered Pamela Clark's body in the entryway of the home. Pamela was nude, lying on her back with her arms spread at 90 degrees to her body and her legs together. Like uh, um, like Jesus on the cross. Yeah. She had suffered 11 deep clustered stab wounds to the upper chest in an area measuring four and one half by three and one half inches. There was evidence indicating she had been dragged to that location and a knife lay near her head. Amber Clark's body lay on the floor, partly in a hallway and partly in a bedroom. She was clothed, but her breasts were exposed. Her legs were spread somewhat apart. Like her mother, she had suffered 11 deep, closely clustered stab wounds to her upper chest area, measuring three by three and one quarter inches. Blood was smeared on her body. A knife blade lay on the floor in the bedroom. That's wild that they were both stabbed 11 times in like similar fashion. Yeah, like purposefully. Yeah. Um, Pamela Clark's purse was found on her bed, but there was no money in it. And her wedding ring was missing. Possible points of entry included a partially open dining room window from which a screen had been removed and a living room sliding glass door. The door handle bore marks of silica and other materials consistent with the gypsum that Prince used in the place of his employment. Shoe prints outside led back and forth under the dining room window. So gypsum, uh, uh, we used it a long time ago, like in our garden. Yeah, um, yeah. It, that's what people use it for, right? Um, Among other things. I'm not sure what else, but uh, they use it in construction, but I'm not really sure what for. Oh, okay. Um, Prince owned Eastland brand shoes that were later matched to shoe prints found under the window and in the dining room. Two people later testified that they saw Prince with Pamela Clark's wedding ring, and Prince had called in sick to work on the day of the Clark murders. During the summer of 1990, Prince made comments to his co-workers that he was dating a massage therapist and that he was doing the massage therapist and her daughter, a comment that they took to refer to sexual relations. Prince commented that the massage therapist was an older white woman with a good body and a youthful appearance, and the daughter, age 17 or 18, was attractive. He offered to sell co-workers jewelry on several occasions. So see, my theory, maybe it really wasn't a stretch. Like, 
uh, him saying he was doing this, these girls or that he took them out. I, I wonder in his mind if he was like, well, of course, they're not going to think I murdered somebody. They're just going to think that I was giving them a good digging or something. I don't know. Uh, just the way it was said, it, like this one, he says they, he was doing them. And the other one, he, he said he took her out. So I, I don't know. To me, it sounds like he killed her. Mm, mm. But I don't know. Okay. Well, in the autumn of 1990, Prince was living at the top of the Hill apartment complex with Shirley Beasley, a male, and Shirley's younger brother, Mo, Moish, Moisha? Mohishia and (laughs) Mohishia, Charla Lewis had moved out. Um, Prince told Mohishia that he could break into apartments at the nearby Trojan apartment building because the doors lacked deadbolts. I'm going to go on a tangent. Okay. Um, Just a real short one. So the name Shirley um, originally uh, was a, a male name. Did you know that? No, I had no yeah. idea. I've never, I've never seen that before. Interesting. Yeah, originally, uh, it, well, it's a surname, and it it was given to males as a first name way back, a uh, long time ago, and then it was actually Charlotte Bronte, not one of the Bronte sisters, uh, who wrote a book called Shirley, mm-hmm. and she named uh, the female character Shirley. And it was supposed to be funny because oh. it was a male name. <laughs> oh, interesting. Look at you with the hard facts. <laughs> and then after that, uh, it became a, a, a woman's name. And now we hardly ever hear of a male n- named Shirley. So I thought that was interesting. This has been Culture Corner with Jess Beth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jess Beth and her white white people facts. <laughs> um, this, this is white people facts by Beth. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a new one. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what accent I'm trying to be doing. <laughs> it's okay. It's entertaining. I'm enjoying. <laughs> so, uh, where where are we? Uh, Prince committed three burglaries. That's you, girl. Oh shit. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Prince committed three burglaries with Moesia, who was only sixteen years old at the time. When committing these burglaries, Prince put socks on his hands as he approached the front door of the targeted home and then opened the door using a plastic card. Wow. <laughs> the image just... Oh, oh. <laughs> the socks on his hands. Yeah, I'm remembering the last episode when he had like the, the cloth on his head and now he's got socks on his hand. He just, Oh, yeah. In my mind, he just looks ridiculous. <laughs> well, when you put it that way, it definitely sounds sounds like it. Uh, so sock puppets are opening this door. I know. What would you do if somebody rolled up on you? Like, uh, sir, why are there socks on your hands, sir? <laughs> um, My sock puppets are strangling you. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Okay. So, okay. Um, <laughs> Prince told Mohishia that he had been inside a home while the female occupant, occupant slept and that if she awakened, he would have cut her throat. He also told Mohishia that he surveilled the homes of women that he met at gyms. 
Prince also committed burglaries with Shirley Beasley. Prince would put socks on his hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's a detail I had not heard heard in other um because other case other cases I've never heard of that before. Putting hands yeah. on, socks on your hands? Socks on his hands. Yeah, it was in the uh court papers. <laughs> mm. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. So he would put socks on his hands and enter the apartments using a credit card. He or a blockbuster card, you know. Mm, right. Right. <laughs> That's a throwback. <laughs> yeah. For those of you listening who were born in the two thousands, there used to be this magical place where people would go and pick out movies to bring them home and watch in their VHS machines on Fridays yeah. and Saturday nights. It was great. It was fabulous. Yeah. Yes. Except for you always had to remember to bring them back or they charge you up the wazoo. Oh, yeah. You and you had uh, to rewind them. Yeah. You had to rewind the rewind. tapes. Yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that business deserved to die. Um <laughs> <laughs> you mention it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah. So he okay. entered the apartments using a credit card. He would grab a knife in the apartment and tell Beasley that if whoever lived there showed up, Beasley should get out of the way and Prince would handle it. Oh. According to Beasley, Prince kept a large quantity of women's jewelry in the apartment that they shared. On December 19th, 1990, Patricia Van returned to her home from the Miramar Road Family Fitness center at about 9 30 a.m about 20 minutes later she heard a soft knocking at the door and saw a black man standing there she opened the door and the man asked for a person named terry but nobody named terry lived there then patricia's neighbor Erlene schooner came up behind him and challenged him and he walked away Whew. yeah schooner had or schooner i don't know had seen the man examining nearby backyards and then entered a side yard and approached van's front door she had seen him get out of a car, noted the license plate, and gave that information to the police. The car was registered to Prince, and he was stopped by the police at 2.30 p.m. on the same day while driving away from the Family Fitness Center on Miramar Road. The vehicle was a gray Chevy Cavalier. Police cited Prince for his loud muffler. Oh, between January and February, a series of similar circumstances occurred with several women who worked out at the Miramar gym. The van's house was also subsequently burglarized. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I would I would have to move. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Take it away, Beth. The murderers terrorized the city. Newspaper articles noted the apparent connection among the crimes and the eventual designation of the murders as serial killings. They predicted another attack and compared the crimes to those committed by Jack the Ripper. It seems like they always go straight to Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they know? Oh, my gosh. So uh, I follow the hashtag uh, Jack the Ripper on Instagram. And every once, <laughs> once in a while, uh, photos of his crime scenes will pop up in my feed. Oh. Oh, yeah, boy, they're horrible. Oh, boy, were they brutal. They were um, horrible. 
Whew. So there was a turn in the case in February 1991 when Prince tried to break into the house of another woman who he followed home from the health club. On the morning of February 3rd, 1991, Geraldine Peters returned home to her Scripps Ranch apartment from her usual morning workout at the Miramar gym. She undressed for a shower, then heard the knob of the front door rattling. Eee. She looked out and saw a black man leaning against the door with his hands in the area of the doorknob. I wonder if they had socks on him. <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> she dressed and exited from her apartment through a sliding glass door and proceeded to the back of the apartment complex, screaming for help. Her neighbor, Jeffrey Pitch, responded. When Gerilyn and Jeffrey walked to the front of her apartment, the man was still standing at the door, bent over and working on the doorknob with some object. He wore gloves, not oh, socks, gloves. it says. Okay. It says not gloves. gloves. <laughs> when challenged, <laughs> the man claimed he was looking for a female friend whom he claimed to have seen entering Gerilyn's home. He then walked away, calling out a woman's name. Yeah, good save, bro. Yeah. Not. I'm thinking uh, he wore gloves to murder and socks to burglarize. <laughs> oh, what if, what if, wow, okay, what if you're right? It could be. I mean, could be. Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey walked down the street and saw the man driving away in a noisy vehicle at a high rate of speed. Geraldine's fiance, Mark Van Vertlow, arrived home and also witnessed the man enter an older silver colored vehicle and drive away noisily at a high rate of speed. <laughs> this guy oh, was boy. not uh, not very stealth. <laughs> no. Oh, uh, goodness gracious. Um, a police officer took statements from Geraldine Peters, Jeffrey Pitch, and Mark Van Vertlow and proceeded to the Family Fitness Center on Miramar with a description of the vehicle and the suspect. The officer asked Fitness Center employees to inform the police in the event they witnessed either the man or the vehicle in the vicinity of the establishment. The next day, Geraldine, who was employed at the same location as Charla Lewis, witnessed a man drop off Lewis at work. The man resembled Prince and drove an older model vehicle that had a loud muffler. What a coincidence. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> We're on it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Jeffrey Pitch, uh, Geraldine's neighbor, also identified Prince in a photo lineup that day. And later he identified a photograph of his car. Mm. Uh I was about to read Wendy on so on February 4th, <laughs> 1991, the fitness center's front desk manager called the police and said that she had observed a silver colored car with a loud muffler driven by a black man drive through the fitness center parking lot, returning 15 minutes later. The car parked 30 feet from her office window and she watched as the driver moved to the passenger side of the vehicle and then slumped down. So he was hunting. Uh, yeah. She was able to observe part of the vehicle license number, which she relayed to the police. Law enforcement officers arrived 15 minutes later and confronted Prince. Prince told the officers that he, he was waiting for his girlfriend, Cindy. A person named Cindy was present at the fitness center at the time. And although she was acquainted with Prince, she was not his girlfriend and had no plan to meet him that day. The officers placed Prince under arrest. I wonder if Cindy, if she was the one that he was uh, stalking. Ooh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't know. I, I guess we will never know. Unless, yeah. unless we send him a letter and ask him. Oh, um, God. And <laughs> Not another one. <laughs> uh, a search of Prince's car uncovered a pair of black leather gloves in the center console and a pair of wool gloves on the driver's seat. Under the driver's seat was a knife with an eight-inch blade and five-inch handle. That is 
fucking huge. Yeah. Um, on the right front floorboard was a folding knife with a two and a half inch blade and a four inch handle. Jeez. Under the front seat were a steak knife and a small folding pocket knife. That's a lot of knives. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta have different knives for uh, different occasions, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> wow. Ooh, that's terrifying. Other employees at the fitness center had observed Prince's car in the center's parking lot on multiple occasions. They had seen a person who may have been Prince seated in the vehicle slumped down in the passenger's seat. Prince was questioned and released after police took a blood sample. Huh. Um, on February 23rd, 1991, an undercover police officer witnessed Prince drive into the Miramar Road Fitness Center parking lot and slowing as he observed a marked police vehicle parked in the lot, exit the center's parking lot and drive away at a high rate of speed. The muffler of his vehicle made a very loud sound. And sometime afterwards, Prince took off for Alabama, where he had family. Prince was finally arrested on March 1st, 1991 in Birmingham, Alabama. Results from blood and saliva samples linked him to the murders of Janine Marie Weinhold, and the pattern of the crimes tied him to the others, as well as shoe prints and glove prints, which were the crosshatch or honeycomb bloodstain patterns, and they matched gloves that had been found in his car. Wow. Um... So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. I was going to say, too, this is early 90s, so... Early DNA, yeah, right. But they were able to match uh, DNA. Oh, okay. 
Um, when the police searched the home of Prince's girlfriend, Charla Lewis, they discovered Holly Tarr's opal ring. The ring was only one of 63 that had been manufactured, none of them having been distributed for sale further west than Michigan or Wisconsin. Charla Lewis said that Prince gave her the ring in December of 1990. Yikes. Um, so now we're going to bounce on over to, the, to uh, this guy's trial. During the trial, an FBI agent testified that the six murders bore common signatures that led him to believe that they were all committed by the same person. Anna Cotalesa Ritchie, who was the woman who was followed from the store to her apartment, positively identified Prince at a video lineup as the person who had followed her, and she identified him at trial. David Holden, a co-worker of Prince's at NACOM Communications, testified that Prince mentioned a girl named Janine. He said that Prince told him that he worked out with her at a gym and went to her home for sexual encounters on one or two occasions. Holden also testified that Prince commented that the police never would capture the Claremont murderer. Wow. Yeah, well, he was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Raymond Huntley, a jailhouse informant, testified to several conversations that he had with Prince. On one occasion, Prince allegedly said that he didn't have nothing for no white bitches. Mm, In another, Prince noted that in his job with the cable company, if he found a woman he wanted to hit, he would check the name on the mailbox to determine whether she lived alone. Now, in that case, uh, I think by hit, he meant uh, have sex with. Yeah. Hit it. Yeah. Yeah. You can, yeah. you can hit this. I'm just kidding. Not you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so the two men discussed assaulting women. Huntley had been convicted of such crimes. Prince reported that he enjoyed stalking women. And once he selected one, he enjoyed playing with his victims, letting them believe that they w- would escape. And then he he would do them. Uh, Prince also said that he enjoyed watching blood drip from a knife onto the victim's pubic area. Wow. Yeah. Was this all over coffee or tea or drinks? Where do you have these conversations? Why is, yeah, why isn't anybody calling the authorities? <laughs> They're in jail. Oh, okay, never mind. They're over a, a nice glass of toilet wine. Oh, yeah, hooch. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, shout out, shout out to Ear Hustle, because um, they they have described how they make it in the toilet, and I just thought, found that so fascinating that uh, that happens. Yeah, they talk about it in um, Orange Is the New Black in the book too. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I think so. I think oh, I remember okay. that they did. I know they talked about making prison cheesecake, which I think I've already talked about on the podcast before. Oh. That sounds disgusting. It it does. Um, Okay. (laughs) So the prosecution presented evidence establishing that the murders at the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex ceased after Prince moved out in the first week of May 1990. Prince sat impassively through the trial, sometimes doodling on a piece of paper. He rarely looked up, even when his mother, Dorothy Prince, testified. <sighs> she testified against her son? Or maybe well, she was she a just, character she was, on his behalf? Yeah, I'm sure they called her to testify, and she had to. Mm. 
But during one break in the proceedings, when Charla Lewis, Prince's former girlfriend, was on the stand as attorneys were meeting privately with Judge Patricia Cowett, Lewis was left on the witness stand and Prince at the defense table. Lewis tried not to meet his gaze and Prince looked solemnly ahead, but eventually their eyes met and Prince broke into a smile and began laughing. Woo. Yeah, that'd be kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. Lewis testified that Prince worked a variety of jobs with shifts beginning at 3 p.m. and on the days of most of the crimes, he had that shift. All the murders reportedly occurred before 3. Wow. On July 13, 1992, after a four-month trial, the jury found 26-year-old Cleophas Prince Jr. guilty. He was also charged and found guilty of 21 counts of burglary, and he was sentenced to death. Prince had no reaction, and um, he got up and, uh, I mean, he was reactionless throughout the whole trial. But once the death sentence was um, given to him, he stood up and he was like, I'm innocent. I didn't kill y'all daughters. Um, I'm sorry about what happened to them, but I didn't do it. It makes me sad to see their bodies, uh, their their uh, the crime scene photos, just as sad as it makes you guys, but I didn't do it. So, yeah. So now we're going to get into where are they now? What do you got? Beth? Well, Prince appealed his sentence of death and the Supreme Court of California denied his appeal in 2007. Prince is still on death row at San Quentin and still claims innocence. Janine Marie Weinhold's parents donated money to purchase playground equipment at the South Claremont Park and Recreation Center in her memory. Holly Tars Okimos Michigan High School established the Holly Tar Memorial Award for Choral and Theater, which is awarded annually to a chosen Okimos senior to honor the memory of Holly. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. So uh, now we're going to get into what we think made him snap and uh, takeaways. So looks like you got a doozy, Beth. What are your thoughts? <laughs> React. Well, there's there's a few unusual things about his crimes. Well, first, first, I, you know, at the end, we say he's 26 year old. He was only 26. That's really young. Yeah. It's just kind of shocking that he did mm-hmm. all this and he was only 26. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, like I said, there's a few unusual things about his crimes. Uh, one is that he only killed white women. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other is that he killed in such close proximity to where he lived. I mean, serial killers usually do kill somewhere around where they lived, but he was killing like in his own apartment complex. Yeah, uh, his neighbors. Yeah, Yeah. which is pretty nuts. Mm -hmm. And he also found weapons at the crime scenes. Like he didn't go in there with a weapon. He would Mm -hmm. go in and get a knife instead of bringing a knife with him. Um, so maybe, maybe uh, winging it was part of the thrill for him. I don't, I don't mm. know. Mm. And sometimes he raped his victims and sometimes he didn't. But what seemed most important to him was the act of stabbing. And um, he also seemed to like posing the bodies uh, that there was a lot of mentioning about how the bodies were positioned. Right. And I read in the book uh, Signature Killers by Robert Keppel that sometimes a killer can delay his sexual gratification until later if what gets him off is controlling the crime scene. And that's what he thought about uh, Prince is that he he really liked 
controlling the crime scene. Oh, yeah. And Prince seemed really impulsive to me. Mm-hmm. Like the the Holly Tar murder, uh, he just went off and followed her, even though his her friend was still at the pool. That seems crazy. Yeah. And uh, Keppel made the comment that Prince was both organized and disorganized in that he didn't always plan out his crimes, Mm -hmm. but that he liked the power of having control over the crime scene. So maybe, you know, he kind of liked the chaos in a way uh, like that was kind of a thrill. But then he also liked having control over the crime scene. Mm -hmm. He also seemed to have a peakerism fetish, which I don't think we've talked about that before. For. This is the first time hearing this word. <laughs> so it's when it's when somebody gets off on uh, penetrating the skin of someone else with a sharp object, oh, and Lord, yeah, that's that's a pretty uh, niche fetish, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Let me check Pornhub. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I uh, you know I don't I don't give a shit what people's fetishes are if they don't hurt anybody, but this particular fetish does hurt people, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not really sure uh, how somebody gets that kind of fetish, but um, I suppose uh, something, I don't know, uh, something goes a little haywire. Maybe. I mean, I'm certainly not one to kink shame. Oh, um, no, no, I'm not shaming. Like I'm just like, well, how do you get that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a really good question um, that I'm unqualified to answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Me um, too. <laughs> um, one thing we, I don't think we mentioned in the story is um, that investigators were like, he's catching a lot of these women when they're alone in the shower. And uh, they were like, I wonder if you can hear the water. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he, uh, so it was pretty clear that if a shower was running in an apartment that you could go outside and you could hear when it came on and off. So you would know when somebody was in a vulnerable position if, you know, that's right. what you were listening for. Um, yeah. I think the brutality and the brazenness of his crimes is pretty breathtaking. Yeah, it is. Um, also, it's just interesting how he was kind of organized and then also but stalked people. And um, so he's kind of all over the place. Also, yeah. uh, we talked a lot about race and serial killers. And one thing that um, profilers get wrong, which we learned from uh, Phil Chalmers, um, Emmy Award-winning crime uh, writer, is that white serial killers usually only kill white people, but POC killers don't necessarily discriminate. And this is a really good example of that. And um, to that point, um, it has to, I think, do with proximity. Like a white person can go about their day and life and hardly ever run into a person of color if they if they want right. and right. um people of color aren't able to move about the uh, the the world without running into the same other white way people. yeah 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 um so i just thought that was interesting yeah i want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast carol costello presents blind rage In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. 
Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. going to get into how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you (laughs) (laughs) this segment is not intended to be victim blaming we thought of this segment because i read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer this is not meant to blame the victims it's just learning from other people's experiences sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips all right go ahead beth So uh, one of the things that uh, happened in this uh, story was that Prince would break into people's apartments that didn't have deadbolts. Mm -hmm. So get a deadbolt if you don't have one already. I think most places do have deadbolts these days. But if you don't have one, get one. Mm -hmm. And uh, pay attention to your surroundings, as always. And watch to see if anyone is following you home from somewhere. Uh, This guy liked to follow women and then push his way inside or break in while they were distracted while showering. So if you think someone is following you, don't go straight home. Keep calm. Don't panic. Uh, Use positive talk to yourself. Tell yourself, okay, calm down. Don't panic. I can deal with this right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if you panic, uh, you might make a mistake. Keep paying attention to your surroundings and to where you're going. Call the police and go somewhere public. Never head for a dark alley through fields or woods, which seems uh, like common sense. But when you're scared, sometimes you do things like that. Yeah. Always head for open public spaces, well lit if night and wherever there are the most people around. If there's nobody around that you can see, consider yelling fire as loudly as you can because people pay attention to that for whatever reason. You yell help or rape. People don't pay attention. But fire, that gets their attention. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. If you have a personal alarm or a whistle, and you should, use it to make as much noise as possible. Draw as much attention to yourself as you can. If you have a cell phone and you're calling the police, announce to the person following you that you're calling the police. (laughs) Yeah. Great (laughs) tips, Beth. That deadbolt one is is a really simple one. We actually got a second deadbolt, so it's it's oh, double wow. deadbolted. Um, Good job. Because people were like breaking into people's houses in my neighborhood and just kicking the door in. Not even wow. It, and so the not, um, not even we, bothering with uh, even, trying to unlock it. Right. So when when that was happening, whew, we got a second deadbolt ASAP. Good idea. Um, let's see. Oh, now we're going to get into a segment of our show where we talk about any serial killer or true crime news. And I just saw this on my, um, 
maybe it's oh, my Twitter feed. Um, uh-huh. And it was a video. So I was like, whoa, this lady's bleeding all over the place. What's going on? <laughs> so uh, La, La Katrina, a.k.a. the Dame of Death, uh, was a female Mexican cartel assassin, and um, she was killed in a shootout with police last week. Mar- Maria Guadalupe Lopez Esquivel was 21 years old. Uh, oh, she had wow, a social young. media, yeah, very young. She had a social media following where she would post, you know, like sexy pictures of herself with like guns. Um, and um, one famous one is uh, a, a post. Uh, that is has been dubbed the girl with the golden gun. So just Google it. You can see she's go- she's gorgeous, but apparently she was very ruthless. Um, wow. She was shot in the neck after engaging in a shootout with her hit squad. Um, she was with the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. Um, this particular cartel um, split from a bigger one uh, and established itself in 2009 and is infamous for their extreme displays of violence. Uh, and the images are Googleable. Like... Um, Uh, public hangings um, and a long list of massacres. Um, It is now one of the biggest cartels in Mexico, as as I understand. Um, Lopez led a hit squad and was responsible for ordering hits on people, extorting people and um, kidnappings. And this made the news again when the video online showed Lopez with an apparent gunshot wound to her neck and um, like a Mexican police officer was like trying to comfort her and he was like don't worry the ambulance is going to come soon we're going to get you to a hospital but um, shortly thereafter she was scooped up by several uniformed armed men and put into a helicopter and she later um, died from her wounds. Um, I just thought it was I was like whoa uh, uh, girl with the golden gun dame of death like uh, these are all like um, captivating um, names and so I was really intrigued by the story I thought it was interesting. Never even heard of any of these things so yeah that's Mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah, I thought so. Um, So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. So what do you got, Beth? Well, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts that were originally, I think they were released as Audible Originals, but now they're podcasts or maybe it was the other way around. I'm not really sure. But in any case, they're by the same guy named John Ronson and uh, he's white. So sorry. (laughs) 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 And there are two, two podcasts, but they can both be found under the title, The Last Days of August. So the second podcast is of that title, The Last Days of August. But the first one is actually called The Butterfly Effect. And it's not the same as the movie. (laughs) Oh, good, because that was trash. (laughs) Yeah, not in any way, shape, or form. It's about the porn industry, specifically about how free porn has changed our society, like streaming porn. Yeah. Uh, The second uh, podcast, uh, The Last Days of August, is also about the porn industry, but about one particular porn star who died in her last days. Her name was August Ames. Oh, she was a porn star and uh, she died. So they are they are really, really fascinating. Um, It's a world I had, you know no knowledge of. So um, the stories are interesting. There's a little bit of true crime involved, but uh, mostly they're just really interesting, well-told stories. So wanted to shout that out. Well, thank you, Beth. Um, You're welcome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, 
it's time for us to go. But before Aww. we do, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. All right. Well, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered they are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.